I'm Jordan Hagedorn. And I'm John Kim. And this is Sneaker Salaries, a deep dive look at sneaker news and sneaker culture with insights from those that live the passion and the lifestyle of sneakers. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Sneaker Salaries. Today, we're speaking with Brian Nadav, who is the owner of Lapson and Hammer in Philly. He's also an integral member of the whole retail landscape out there. Brian, welcome to the show, man. Thank you for having me. So, Brian, you have a very unique background uh, when it comes to the footwear world. You know, we would love to have you start by telling us about your origin story. So the origin starts 1981, the year I was born. Also the year that my father started a store called City Blue here in Philly. So grew up in the shop. He started it in 1981 selling Levi's jeans and white t-shirts on a small store, 13th and Market, that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, That block they blew up and obviously redeveloped. But... uh, That's what it was. So early 80s, this idea of what fashion is today, what streetwear was very much at its birth. And so he kind of just followed along, picked it up as it went, learned who the consumer was, who was coming into shop with him from Levi's jeans. It was very much sportswear based of the 80s, if you guys know LS, Lacoste Sportif, you know, and then other brands like Bill Blass. And it was all bubbling out of sportswear, you know, before this so-called sort of fashion, you know, really hit in the streetwear. Nike was brought on, I believe, in 1986 as one of the early footwear partners. You know, at the time, you know, we were carrying tons of different brands that don't exist anymore. I mean, obviously some of these sportswear brands like Lotto and Sergio, or they're sort of coming back and rebirth a million times um, with different licensees picking them up. So for me, retail was always just in my blood. I worked there on the weekends, you know, in the summers, every day off from school, I had to head to the shop. You know, if there was a new sneaker releasing. I had to put my time in, work a couple weekends in a row to be able to get it. Um, My pops is an immigrant. He came over from Israel, you know, classic sort of immigrant story, $300 in the pocket, doesn't speak a lick of English, that whole thing. He really started, he had a spot was selling, you know, used jeans on a tent in Atlantic City uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s. That's kind of where he met my mom. Uh, actually at a disco um, on the, in the Atlantic city boardwalk. So, you know, maybe that's where, that's where I came from under the boardwalk. uh, (laughs) So to say, so, um, you know, regardless, you know, it was for him, it was always about like, you got to put the time in, you know, that sort of immigrant mentality about, you know, nothing is given to you and you have to work and you have to fight. And for him coming to this country was very much the American dream. And, you know, and that, and that idea, you know, just comes into play about how, how much people take things for granted here in this country, you know, myself, you know, I grew up here, obviously, you know, had everything we needed growing up. So, you know, I can't specifically speak to the struggling immigrant story, but being firsthand, um, those, those, you know, those ethics and that worth ethic was very much instilled within me. So, you know, it was a part of me that always knew I was going to, you know, be in this business my whole life. You know, I went to college, geography and urban studies. There was a time that I thought I was going to be a musician, you know, full time. And uh, when I took over for my uncle, worked worked in the shops, you know, 
from the stockroom managing. I worked in the gallery store throughout the 90s. The gallery was an epic mall in Philly, you know, one of just like where the epicenter of like where the streetwear fashion was happening in Philly at the time. And so we remember working there in that store when the OG 95s dropped, like, you know, and so just remember the hype of of what hype was back then, which was totally different. You know, it was much different than it is today, obviously, for all the reasons that we know. But um, that was very much there. So took over, you know, got into district managing, kind of really running this this footwear piece and really was focusing there, working on interstore transfers, kind of doing the ordering. In 07, when my pops and my uncle split, he kind of ran the footwear. Uh, my pops always ran the apparel for City Blue. So that's when I took over operations and really just took over the whole thing. And it was starting from A to Z, right? I looked at it. I'm like, you know, one of the constant struggles was the information systems, right? You're running multi-store chain and you're like, okay, I got my 161s over here. For those of you that don't know, that's the, you know, the classic Timberland wheat boot. And we have, you know, stockpiles of them in the warehouse and everybody's calling for refills on the 61s. You know, most recently, 315122, color 111, the all-white Air Force One, which has been around for probably more than 20 years. But just this season, they actually just updated that color code. So it's very nostalgic that that number is going away. Uh, CW2288, so they kind of made it sound pretty good, is the new Air Force One style number. So getting back to it, it was like our information was bad. What, you know, what's going on? The, the computer says we have this many in the warehouse. No, we don't have it. Store five has this, you know, and it was always like my pops, very classic, this old and the new, the ancient and the modern. He's a guy came to the country, didn't speak English, didn't read English, doesn't believe in computer technology at all. And I'm like, we need to revamp this whole information system because we need to see what's going on. We have better control of our inventory. So that was a mission. That was a big program. And then it was about um, upgrading our store presence. Some of these shops had been open since the 80s, early 90s, and haven't been updated. Uh, my pops is very much a guy, you know, stack it high and watch it fly. I'm a very less is more kind of a, you know, mentality. So we had the classic sort of father and son struggles, luckily, and, and very much blessed that we were able to continue to work together over the years. Um, he did take a lot of my advice. He did give me the keys in terms of let me make the changes that needed to happen to get City Blue over the hump, to get it to the next level. Uh, City Blue was very much a leader in the 80s, in the 90s, in the early 2000s. And so you know, every shift in the culture, every shift in what was happening in fashion, he kind of played and moved with it and was always a couple steps ahead. And I think by the time I took over in 07, the industry had changed once again, you know, in that in those mid 2000s where the era of the big branded, you know, artist brands were gone. If you, if you know, I'm talking about specifically like the Rockawares and the baby fats, like these were artists and industry, uh, music industry leaders that were now taking on the face of these brands. And that was very much the shift of like what was different from the eighties and the nineties was in the nineties, you had Rockaware, Anichi, Academics, LRG. If you had those brands, you, you wove your way through them. 
if you had Nike, even better, you know? And so that was very much the business whereas by the 2000s, things just really changed. You know, this idea of what streetwear was and what a skater was and what this like hip hop guy was just was blending and meshing and the styles were just, you know, very much, you know, where, what brought us to where we are today. And I think you can kind of say Kanye West had, had something to do with that, with changing the fashion at the time and really, um, you know, making things go away from this big baggy oversized look and getting slimmer and getting, you know, preppier, if you will. And I think the focus in, you know, streetwear was always influenced from luxury. You know, that was always very aspirational from luxury perspective, not much to, not, not how it was today with how it's so intertwined and how streetwear is really running what the luxury brands are doing today. But, um, you know, that was always an influence and that was always sort of a takedown to, to sort to sort of aspire to be. And so back to when I took over, it was like, okay, we need to focus on sportswear and get back to the roots. We need to put footwear first again. Uh, there was different eras of what was happening at city blue. So we, we got the store sexier. We, you know, I, I created a new, you know, visual merchandising tool, you know, new customer service models and implementing that. And that took us through, you know, I'd say 2011, 2012, which is like, we were continuing to renovate stores very much against the will of my pops. He's like, it ain't broke. Don't fix it. And I'm like, but this is not the way of the future. We need to create more of a concept shop. We need to get sexier. We need to bring in premium brands. So that was a battle for a couple of years. And I guess through the renovation of our South street city blue South street store, which is very much like a flagship uh, city blue for us. Um, at that point, it was clear that uh, I needed my own concept and it wasn't going to happen at City Blue. I can't just all of a sudden bring in crazy premium brands where, you know, we have a consumer. It's, it's literally been over three decades. And so you can't alienate that consumer and all of a sudden bring in $500 denim when people are buying $50 jeans over there. You know, so it was very much at that time. That's where this idea of Lapstone and Hammer was born. I needed my own concept and I needed the own, my own vehicle just to sort of create what I felt was the men's shopping experience of today and really of the future and where, where this is all going. So, you know, Lapstone and Hammer, um, the focus being on footwear. So very much I was sort of searching for this idea of the origins of footwear and wanting to tell this story, you know, about how men, we get dressed up from the feet up. You know, not all guys are as fashion savvy as you, John. And so, you know, so it's just like, you know, guys sometimes need a little direction. And so that's where this idea of Lapstone and Hammer was born, researching the the origins. You know, that was an incredible not only origin story, but actually like a full on history lesson for those listening. And I think it's really interesting before we get into Lapstone, you know, John can touch on that, but I want to talk about, you know, what you just said is really a, a classic story of a lot of our friends in the, in the footwear industry who have taken over for the previous generation, right? We have a lot mm -hmm. of friends who had shops. John's dad even had a shop at one point. And you kind of look at this, uh, the situation you're in as very much uh, the future of the footwear landscape, right? People yeah. in their 30s and into their 40s now are taking over for previous generations. And it's really, really cool to hear this. And 
Uh, for those listening, you know, this is a classic story of kind of like you said, old meets new. And yep. not only looking at, okay, this is what was happening, you know, pre-technology, pre-internet, pre, uh, let's call it when sneakers blew up, because it sounds like you were working there in the 90s. So you saw the boom, and then the internet kind of took over. So I, I don't want to skip past that, because it's it's actually a really profound thing. Really cool history lesson there. Um, you know, I, I want to, before we move on quick, you know, what were the things you did take? I mean, you talked about hard work, you talk about updating the systems, but can you real briefly touch on before we go into Lapstone and Hammer, talk about like maybe just a couple things you learned and, and then are going to take into your own concept? I mean, you know, there's just countless, countless, um, you know, lessons if you're, if you're saying like, what did I learn as in growing up in city blue um, and, you know, working with my dad. I mean, if you're talking about, you know, the retail concept, what's really important is being involved in the community and is knowing your consumer, like literally knowing them. Who are they? Who are their families? You know, their cousins, you know, their brothers, you've watched them grow up. And there's something to be said about an independent retailer. And that's, this isn't a knock on the footlockers of the world because obviously there's real people that work there and they're all great people. Um, but there's a different connection at an independent retailer and specifically the mom and pop style footwear shops that we all grew up you know, working in and going to, which pretty much are gone. They are gone. I mean, you know, Nike and some other brands have really effectively removed the mom and pop retailer from this landscape. So one of the most important things about the mom and pop retailer is the connection to the people, to the community, and something that, that I learned that early on. And I learned that people want to be comfortable. They want to feel comfortable. They want to feel like it's a safe environment where they can act how they want, you know, have fun, you know, a place to chill, a place to congregate. And so with the you know, the bigger box retailers, you really don't get that. And so, you know, the, the, the hookups, you know, that you get from a mom and pop shop that, you know, that I grew up with at city blue, where it was like, you know, can you give me these for, for $80? No, they're a hundred, but I'll do 90 for you. Okay. No problem. You know, that is, you know, the, the haggling aspect is pretty much gone from a lot of retailer from a lot of retail today. And that was something that we grew up on. And I don't know if that was an immigrant thing that was sort of brought in or if it's just this like small, you know, mom and pop thing that was very common. So it's about connecting to the consumer. It's about being involved in the community. This is something that my pops did, you know, was donation drives and being involved. We were a part of gun buyback programs in the 90s with the city of Philadelphia. And so can you get involved and help make change as a retailer? The answer is yes. And I learned that at an early age. And that's why community involvement and supporting the community and charitable events have always been a part of Lapstone since we opened five years ago. Whether it's a shoe drive, whether it's fundraising for the Boys and Girls Club or homeless organizations or any number of, you know, public schools that we've been involved in and getting programs, whether it's uniform programs. Last year, we supported a program that bought computers for computer and film classes. This year, we were a part of, of raising money to get Wi-Fi hotspots and tablets for kids, you know, in this new era of virtual schooling. And so, you know, you don't have tablets if you don't have Wi-Fi connection. Well, you are missing out literally on your education now. So 
being a part of that really taught me that that's what something that even as a store, sure, we're not just the store, we are actually an integral part of the community. So those are things, knowing your consumer, I'd say the retail team and really like from coming from a family business, there was a lot of family that worked with us. And as family started phasing out working with us, whoever sort of came in and, and really coming up, building your team from the ground up was what I learned. It's like, you don't go out and headhunt and hire somebody who's been a manager at Jimmy Jazz to come in. No, your best, our best managers started as stock boys, worked their way up to key holder, assistant managers, and that they know the system, they know the language, they know how we operate, you know, they know the consumers. So building a team from the ground up is super important, you know, in retail. And I, I truly believe that, um, especially in a small business, like we're not going to front, like we're some corporate backed thing where you can just come in and say, here's our policies, here's how you handle this, here's your customer service model, blah, blah, blah. This is not, you know, hello, welcome to McDonald's. How can I take your order? You know, mm -hmm. everything is personal and everything that we do is meant to make you feel comfortable. So I think that's something that we mm -hmm. really brought in to Lapstone when I opened, you know, five and a half years ago. I think the landscape was very much made up in the boutique world, I'd say. And I know you're going to say, hey, don't jump ahead. But the point is, is like, I know kids who are not total sneakerheads who would walk into a boutique and be like, yo, did the, the, you guys got the cool grays or whatever it is. And that person looks them up and down and it's like, dude, those released last week, they're gone. And all of a sudden, or just a response, right? This sort of supreme sort of fuck you mentality wasn't what we wanted to sort of carry it on. We want people to feel comfortable. We want this non-pretentious air to be about. Mm -hmm. And so I think another thing, it was always about not hiring the cool kids. And this isn't a knock to anybody who, who works with us at Lapstone or in City Blue. Believe me, these people are way cooler than, than the quote unquote cool kids. But the cool kids, they don't want to help you. They don't want to give you information. You know, for me, it's like you have to know the brands. You have to know what you're talking about. And you have to, you have, to have that sort of product mm -hmm. knowledge to be able to connect a little bit to the, to the consumer. So I think for Lapstone, I think you had this clear-cut formula. You had the community, the focus on that, which I have seen you guys do with your, even with your raffle drops, instead of just doing a quick, hey, submit your email and pick your size, you guys always leverage um, that opportunity to help like a local charity. And also hiring within, you know, cultivating talent within the City Blue family and bringing them up to Lapstone. And of course, you had decades of just the business experience just in retail, because that's super valuable as well. Because we speak to other uh, boutique owners who said they just started it because they felt like starting it. They just rented a place and put some, you know, teas on the shelf. But you had all this experience. So all that together, you know, how do you think that kind of contributed to the success of Lapstone thus far? I mean, I think no doubt that all of my my experience, my upbringing, you know, the fact that, you know, I was sort of born into this in a way, you know, my pops had a business and, you know, I very much chose to stay in that lane. I could have moved into a different lane and we could have left this all behind, but it was something that I chose and it was something that I felt was meaningful to me, you know, was a passion. So the opportunities, no doubt, were 
or well ahead of like, if you're going to take somebody random and say, this guy's got a passion for sneakers, he wants to open a store. I mean, the uphill battle is almost impossible. So I don't want to sit here and discourage anybody because obviously anything is possible. And so many shop owners did not come from like a retail background, but very much, I, uh, you know, I have to say that I was blessed and I had the opportunity I had a network of, you know, not only brands and and retailers and, you know, sales reps that I knew, but, you know, I knew the language. I spoke the the language. I I was in the business. So I wasn't just saying, here, this is my passion and I'm going to go after this passion project and this is my dream. There was a lot of like data and analytics that were there like, okay, well, you know, this is, this is why I am qualified to be able to do this and very much building on, you know, the network that city blue had, which was, you know, we were a Nike account already, you know, Mm -hmm. people know how hard it is to become a Nike account. So even that was a two year process of meetings and flying to the headquarters and going to New York and presenting my concept and why number one, it was needed and what was the hole and the void that it was filling, but also why it was going to be successful and what our angle was and we had a clear vision and what it was, you know, different than at the time, the only sneaker boutique in Philly was Ubic. Mm-hmm. So for a while I was like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, open this shop. And it was, oh, you're just going to open another Ubic. I was like, okay, well, you're clearly haven't been listening to what I've been saying, if that's what you think, you know? So Lapstone was, was very much um, in my mind, filling a void. I mean, mm-hmm. Philadelphia, one of the five largest markets in the country and the fact that there was only one you know top tier sneaker boutique was embarrassing and i even heard that from nike execs they'd come and they do market travel and they're like okay philly where are we going they're like well we're gonna go to ubic and we'll take you to south street and you can get a jim's cheesesteak and go see villa and city blue and kicks usa and they were like oh that's it that's all there is to see so you know there's definitely um Philly was underserved for Mm -hmm. sure when we opened and I I still think it's underserved. You know, I don't think Philly gets the respect that I think it deserves a little bit. And I got to say on Chestnut, that's like one of the nicest stores I've ever been to. Like probably ever, to be completely honest. I'm not just tooting your horn because I've been to so many sneaker shops international. And I got to say Lapstone is definitely one of the most beautiful stores I've ever been to. So let's talk about the design a little bit because there's something very deliberate that you did, I guess, with the design. You know, the mm-hmm. forefront is has that nice rich wood and in the back it's that nice marble. It's almost like you're in two different stores at, you know, at once, right? So can you talk a little yep. bit about, you know, maybe the deliberate placement of certain things, of certain product and what you try to achieve with that? Yeah, I mean, I think that good design needs to have like form, support the function, you know? And so this idea that when, when we were first starting to build Lapstone and come up with designs, we did not want to build this like a regular retail store. So I didn't want to bring in some retail dinosaur who had been designing stores for 500 years and say, this is how we do this. You know, for me, it was like, let's create a vibe and somewhere that we want to hang. And the analogy that I had in my head when we were creating, it was very much like a bar and a lounge, like the sneaker bar. You know, we don't have tables we don't have racks you know it's like you walk in there is you know there's the counter there's a huge uh you know display made of black walnut and that's where like all the accessories are right after that you have your 
your footwear, your handcrafted footwear, um, also in a black walnut display case. And on the other side, you have this 22 foot black walnut display case, very much featuring, you know, the apparel. So it's like dark woods, brass hits, um, you know, very, you know, not, it's like a rugged ref, a refined rugged, if you will, in the front with the dark woods. Um, and as you move towards the back, you know, is where the marble comes in and you have your backlit panels, um, you know, your sort of premium sportswear, this idea of like, let's elevate sportswear also in the concept of the design was very much, we knew the worlds of sportswear and streetwear and luxury were coming together. So Lapstone was very much built to house luxury brands. You know, not only was it a focus of Lapstone and hammer being the tools that the cobbler once used. So this idea of like focusing on footwear, but this idea of also about, you know, the passion that the cobbler has and just as a metaphor for any artist in their craft that, you know, and so it's about quality and craftsmanship, which includes a lot more than just sneakers and footwear. So that's, that, that was a focus too, for us of Lapstone opening and not just being pigeonholed as like a sneaker boutique. We wanted to offer this sort of full scope. So we kind of have three different spaces when you walk through the shop and each shop kind of caters to a different category, if you will, as the front being your your accessories, your art and fashion publications, your grooming products, you know, your, your publications. In the middle, you have kind of more of this heritage play where we feature different brands in the big case. Right now we have this, the full Emelion door set up over there. Um, this summer, I mean, this, sorry, this fall, winter, we're gonna have a big Polo Ralph Lauren takeover in that section. You have your handcrafted footwear, footwear brands from around the world and just like a little bit more of an elevated footwear piece. And then you move into your sneaker section and then you move into the back, which is like your luxury sportswear and, and streetwear section. So three different spaces, three different categories really meant to, to, to have you feel like you're moving through some different spots, but also really cohesive to the way we designed it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. And I know, you know, you guys have one of the most beautiful stores and honestly in talking to you, you can tell why you guys have been successful, right? It's not just a beautiful store, but the way you treat people, the way you've hired, the way you've uh, really taken a different approach. And like you said, filled a void uh, in what is, you know, a very fruitful area in Philly. I mean, I've been to Philly and Mitch and Ness and there's so many, you know, the sports culture in Philly is second to none, you know, and, and yeah. even, even though the savages, you know, throw snowballs at Santa Claus, but uh, <laughs> you know, so, so with that said, you know, you've, you've done a great job building this kind of uh, empire within your dad's, you know, kind of original empire. Can you talk about adapting? You know, there's been a pandemic. There's been a lot of kind of ups and downs in the in the sneaker world. Um, a lot more ups, you know, as of late. But then there's this pandemic. Can you talk about evolving and adapting as a business owner and, and kind of how you've stuck through this? Yeah, I mean, as a business owner, I think like running retail, one of the, the early adaptions was like, okay, well, the store's closed. We were closed for four months. So we only had online to rely on and everybody pretty much went virtual. So it was about taking a team that very much met every day and was physically together to learning how do we work, you know, virtual. And I think, you know, that's the same challenge that every business faced over the last year. How do we, you know, adapt and how do we do that? So the easy things, fine, Zoom meetings, Slack, all of that. But, um, you know, what happened for the business, I should say, was 
you know, in my experience, we had a good digital presence. We had a good, you know, our website was moving. So when the, when the store shut down, the traffic just flowed to the website. And, you know, there was a time when like every brand in the world, when the pandemic hit was 20 off, 30 off, 40 off, 50 off. And it was like, everybody was just killing prices, sales like crazy. And we didn't jump on that right away. We were like, no, we're not just going to start burning inventory for no reason. Number one, we knew the supply chain was going to be really affected. And I had been hearing about this from brands for a few months, right? Like it was January and brands were hitting me up saying, your summer deliveries are going to be late. We're pushing this out. You know, we're canceling this. I mean, you know, canceling orders, I'm talking about 50, 60% of the order book of just product that was just being canceled because if they were building the product in Asia in January, in February, well, that product is, is meant to be shipped to us for summer, for June, July, August. So back in January, we knew June, July, August, we're going to be fucked you know, stuff was canceled, shit was being pushed out. And we were told that product was going to be really light. So that had like a double effect that by the time we got to May, June, July, August, while we were in the midst of this pandemic that had, you know, blown up, not to mention, you know, just like supply chain, it was like shipments. I mean, it was October and we were still getting May goods. It is now I'm still getting fall goods coming in. So I think one of the biggest challenges was product because lots of retailers killed everything at mm -hmm. crazy discounts. And by the time, you know, April came, May, there was no product being shipped. It was insane. So if you burned all your product at 50 off, you were fucked. You had nothing else to sell where, you know, people really wanted to shop. When we reopened, it was insane what was going on in the street. I mean, Right now, you're talking about the fatigue that people have. But, you know, six months ago, we all went into the pandemic thinking we were going to be shut down for two weeks, three weeks, and, you know, told the team, cool, I'll see everybody in two weeks. Uh, we'll see what happens. And here we are a year later, and it's still not out. And there's, there's kind of no end in sight. I don't know. I don't, I don't know which way it's going to go. But, you know, we're going to feel this for, for at least for, for years to come. Mm -hmm this, the effects of this pandemic. So supply chain was really a problem in terms of getting product. Mm -hmm. um, and I have to say Nike did an absolutely amazing job while the rest of the world was reeling and nobody, and I don't want to name names, but nobody could ship or deliver product. And Nike still had weekly drops hitting your weekly Jordan drop, your GR was hitting, you know, now there was priorities that I was seeing because we, I, I see what was coming in for the city blue shipments versus the lapstone. I mean, lapstone shipments were coming in weeks or months ahead of city blues shipments. So they were doing a, you know, I can't even imagine the type of logistics that they were performing and, and to, to get all this product out. So the fact that Nike was so organized in a way to keep the product flowing was really impressive to me while I was looking at all of the other brands and everybody was reeling and couldn't deliver. And believe me, Nike had their fair share and still has their share of delivery issues from everywhere, from product being built to product being shipped to warehousing, all the carriers, the mess that, that every single 
transportation carrier was was going through so there was nightmare situations going on but um yeah they kept it together which was really impressive and really fed the hunger i think that was mm -hmm. around during during the, the initial shutdown when nobody was leaving their house yeah. you know and it was amazing that people were still buying shoes like fucking crazy, you know, with yeah. nowhere to rock them, nowhere to go. People had more money to spend. Yeah, well, they had a lot more money to spend because you're not going out. You're not spending it on yeah. regular stuff, regular yeah. going out. So you yeah. just have all that extra money that you're just funneling in. Yeah. Not to mention, you know, the stimulus shit hit. I mean, people did not save their stimulus money for rent. It all went to sneakers and to oh, streetwear shit. I mean, that's exactly where yeah. it went. But, you know, talking to a lot of retailers, like we were fortunate you know we were fortunate to, to continue to do business and stay mm -hmm. busy um me and two guys kept the warehouse running for four months you know shipping everything receiving i mean it was nuts and so at the time i was busier than ever because mm -hmm. i had you know nobody working super small staff uh mm -hmm. that physically actually could be there you know when it comes to everybody's like oh yeah well the stores are closed and i can't believe you're going outside it's like well I have a hundred orders to ship today. What do you want me to do? You're not going to get your sneakers. So don't be mad at me for leaving my house. Somebody's got to ship your sneakers. You know, people don't think about that. Like, oh, it's pandemic. You shouldn't be leaving. Um, so. No, I appreciate you sharing all that. Yeah. I mean, just like talking to retailers, like it was, there's almost no middle ground. Like you were either doing really well or you were, you were fucked, you yeah. know? And so a lot of the old school guys, who had zero web presence, zero internet, you know, no digital presence. Well, they were fucked. Yeah. Therefore, they didn't, they didn't make a sale in six months, yeah. you know? So that coupled with the consolidation and the fact that, you know, consolidation, I mean, as in two ways, like JD Sportswear buying up, you know, Villa and Shoe Palace and, you know, Snipes coming in and buying all that, that's consolidating the market, but also, Nike and the big brands going, see you later to all the small guys and just mm -hmm. getting rid of all the mom and pops. But I think that, that kind of speaks to just how prepared you guys were. I mean, you were saying that, you know, your fan base, they really wanted to shop and they wanted to shop with you. And I think that just speaks to how important Lapstone is to the Philly community, how important you are to the community. So one thing I wanted to touch on, this happened a few years ago was, and I think uh, you, you sent me some photos or whatever, but... Uh, when Meek Mill was released from prison, and it was such a huge moment, one of the first right. places he stopped by was Lapson on Hammer. So can you talk a little about that, right. just to lighten the mood a little bit? Tell us about that story. What did, what did he buy? And, you know, I know he went to that Sixers game that night, I think, right? Right. So, yeah. so that's the first place I was going to say. That's the first place he went was the Sixers game. I was yeah, actually yeah. at that game. And, you know, Michael Rubin picks him up, flies him in a helicopter. Um, his manager had on some gear when they picked him up that he had gotten at lapstone so his manager coon is a friend of mine had on some gear and was wearing uh this brand almost always and it was a sick tracksuit. it was this beautiful butterfly we had just hosted a pop-up for them local designers at lapstone and so he was like yo where'd you get that and he was like oh lapstone and so meek was like okay cool we gotta go um so one reason is he had gained weight so he was he came in and was like i need all the jeans like everything we were like whatever's in his size because he came home none of his jeans had fit so he was super salty that none of his shit fit and then went into like a hardcore workout regiment so came in and copped a ton of apparel john elliott jeans nudie 
APC denim, and he got a bunch of like needles stuff. Um, we had we had a few pieces of like some Rick Owens pieces that he picked up. I think he picked up a bunch of kicks too. And I specifically had brought a bunch of like Kuhn was like, yo, do you have these from like last week from a few months back? And I, I tend to keep some stuff on ice every now and then. So I was like, oh, I, I do have that in a 10 and a half. I have this. So we brought down a bunch of kicks. He was still in the midst of a Puma deal. So we really, he couldn't really rock them out and about, but he still wanted to cop like a ton of Nikes and Jordans that he had missed, even though he, he had the Puma deal, which is always funny. Like yeah. as a store owner, you always get the guys who are from the other brand, but need their little stash of like whatever comes out. So we're not going to name names there, but yeah. Uh, Meek coming through was just like showing love to, to the hometown guys. You know, it was awesome. Love it. Can you talk about, you know, the community in Philly, not just Meek, but you know, Michael Rubin is somebody who's doing a lot of uh, great things there too. But can you talk about some of the pro athletes, uh, any interactions you've had with some of those guys coming in the store? Dude, the baseball players spend money. Okay. The baseball players, and they don't want anything for free. They just want access to the cool shit because the brands, even if they are signed with Nike, don't take care of the baseball players. So they're like, please, whatever, you know, I need this that's coming and that. So they are, you know, just like the whole Phillies roster is awesome coming in, showing love all the time. Um, a lot of the times we just shipped or yeah, I know you're pointing to your Mets hat. So I have to say we did not have quite the off season that you guys did. But we'll see. I think, I think the rivalry is going to be officially renewed. Oh, yeah. So, you know, we'll have our snowballs and batteries ready for you guys when you. <laughs> but, no uh, yeah. So baseball players are awesome. Basketball players really have all the footwear they want. So they don't. And they're, they're too big. So they can't cop sneakers from us. But basketball players really want the apparel because you know what's going on in the NBA. Every it's like a fashion show. So they come in to cop because they can wear large XL 2X. Football players also don't get taken care of by the brands. They can't fit any apparel in the store, but they they want sneakers because they have more normal sized feet, the football players. So uh, that's an interesting mix. Yeah, that makes sense. So I want to wrap with this. You know, as we've talked to you, we, we have a great feel for how you guys have done business, how you've grown the empire. Uh, a lot of just, man, just years and years of experience and, and really what I've learned is just genuinely caring about the community and your customers. You know, we, we see a lot of times, even just as consumers, John and I maybe go into a store and you can tell right away if they're going to treat you well or kind of how they operate. And, um, you know, obviously with our experience, you've been nothing but good to us. And, and also that's why you've built such a great business. So can you kind of leave us with some lessons from advice for people if they're trying to get into the footwear industry, even if they're not trying to start a store, even just what it takes to work for you, build a relationship and, uh, and kind of, you know, get entered into the, the sneaker world. Do you have any advice and takeaways for anybody listening? Yeah. I mean, the advice really is just go out there. And especially when you're young, nothing is beneath you. You have to go, go intern, go out, reach out. And like, you know, sometimes you have, you have to be persistent. You know, I don't pretend to be some famous dude, but like, if you're going to DM me once, there's a very good chance I may miss it. And so, hit me up again. I mean, and I, and I do hear this, like, it's like, go out there, hit up the people that you aspire to work with, that you aspire or that, that inspire you hit them up, ask them questions, you know, get out there, put yourself out there. And it's really about getting your foot in the door. If you hear the stories of so many people that work in the footwear industry, they started as 
as a stock boy here, as an intern there, and you work your way up. So it's not, it's very much about connections, sure. But the only way to make those connections is to get in and face to face and really just create those relationships. So you don't have to be some famous person and be like, oh, well, they got all the connections. You got to start meeting people. You have to be real. You have to stick to yourself and keep pushing. And that's it. You know, again, your attitude is really everything. And, you know, when I'm hiring, it's about, it's about being knowledgeable. It's about being comfortable. It's about being yourself and being comfortable within yourself. So you could be a little shy and that's okay, but you need to be approachable and you need to be willing to approach people. And that's like in life too. If you're trying to get into something, you have to be willing to go and approach and approach and put yourself out there. It's okay because Michael Jordan has those sayings and I'm going to say, you know, missed a million shots and blah, 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 or whatever those sayings are of how many times you have to fail and fall on your face and being able to get back up, you know, is to do something right. So it's not necessarily about throwing as much shit on the wall and seeing what sticks. That's not it. What it is, it's very much about going for it and, and doing something and it's okay to fail. It's okay to fail because every time you're going to fail, you're going to learn something. You're going to learn, you're going to gain a piece of confidence. You're going to learn something new, something fresh. You're going to meet somebody along the way. And all of that helps build who you are and what your trajectory is. And don't be too cool. I think anyone who's too cool for one thing is too cool for me. So, and you know, we, we deal with that too. We get a lot of people who apply for jobs at sneaker news and, you know, I try to read through every one of them and you can just tell some people who think that they're entitled to work for a sneaker news or a major media company and some who are just there to work. So don't be too cool. That's that's another big one. So again, just to close, yeah, yeah, just to close, man, Brian, I I appreciate you sharing all that insight, you know, dropping a lot of uh, deep gems on not only the sneaker retail business, but just to give a little insight on how you guys dealt with a pandemic and, you know, and things of that nature. And of of course, sharing some personal stories. So again, Brian, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's always good to catch up, man. Thank you guys. Really appreciate you having me on. Honored. John, great to see you. Jordan, pleasure to meet you. And I uh, hope to see you guys soon, man, in real life. In oh, real yeah. life. Maybe soon. I don't Hopefully. know. So that's it for this week's episode of Sneaker Salaries. But let's keep the conversation going online on our social media channels. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sneaker Salaries and hit us with a DM or a tweet. You can follow me personally on Instagram at John B-E-E-J Kim. And you can follow me on Instagram at Jordan Hagedorn. We'd love to hear your feedback, and if there's a topic you want us to tackle or a guest you want us to have on, you can reach out to us at sneakersalariespod at gmail.com. If you like the episode, feel free to share it with your friends and help spread the word. And please show us some love by leaving a five-star rating and positive review so we can grow this podcast. Sneaker Salaries is a sneakernews.com and 137 p.m. partnership and a Gallery Media Group original production.